If you were asked to defend the Bible, what argument would you use? That was a question that was asked to Frederick the Great of Prussia back in the 18th century. He, he had fallen under the influence of the French philosopher Voltaire and had come to the conclusion that, that maybe the Bible wasn't reliable. In fact, maybe God didn't really exist. He called in his chaplain and he put to his chaplain that question. I want you to prove to me the inspiration of scripture and I don't want a long dissertation. I don't have the time or interest to read it. I want it in a single word. The chaplain looked back at the king and said, I can do that. The king, a little surprised, said, oh, what is this magical word? And his response was Israel. The king thought for a moment and said nothing. I, I, I hope that you can come up with a number of reasons you believe the Bible to be true. But without question, one of the most interesting is the reality that for over 4,000 years, people have tried their best to exterminate the Jews, but have never succeeded. Every spring, my wife directs a, a play at school, and it seems as if the day after the play is done, she begins the arduous job of trying to choose next year's play. This last year, it was Wizard of Oz, and the day after, she began reading through a number of scripts, trying to decide if she liked the script, tries to decide if the kids will like the script, tries to decide if they have the kids necessary to pull off the script. One of the plays she was giving a great deal of thought to for this year was the play Fiddler on the Roof. My guess is almost all of you have heard of that play. I'm hoping many of you have seen it. May I share that I'm really glad she didn't choose it? Because it's just a depressing play. It's all about this family that loses everything simply because they're Jews. They get moved out of their village and all of their possessions taken for no other reason than they happen to be of the wrong ancestral history. And that's really the, the track of the Jews for the last 2,000 years for sure. There have been nation after nation. Adolf Hitler in the 1930s came up with his final solution. The, the solution to all that ailed Germany was the extermination of the Jewish nation. If we could just simply wipe off every Jew from planet Earth, all of our problems would go away. And he set out to do so and in the process killed at least five million of them. As the war ended, the United Nations in 1948, seeing how badly Israel had been treated, they allowed Israel to return to their ancestral roots and gave them their own state of Israel. Does that matter to Christians? Should it matter? Is there something about the establishment of a nation of Israel that really matters? Well, may I suggest that's kind of the question Paul is going to get to. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me back to Romans chapter 11? We're going through this most important of all doctrinal dissertations. As Paul begins his introduction back in chapter 1, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Paul sets out to explain the gospel to us. Uh, who, how, when someone can find the gospel. And then in chapter eight, he reaches the zenith maybe of all of his writing. And chapter eight is this incredible uh, dissertation. It begins with, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with us 
promised we would never be separated from God's love ever again. If you've been with us, you probably remember that I'm kind of working from this outline for the book of Romans that it's divided into these four major sections. It begins with the question, how is a person justified? And in the first four chapters, five chapters, Paul answers that question. Then he turns to how justified people ought to live. And then he turns to how justified people live together. And in chapters 9 to 11, he talks about Israel. There aren't any Jews here this morning, I don't think. Why don't we just skip that? Why don't we just jump from chapter 8 as the height of encouragement to chapter 12, the height of practicality. There may be no more practical chapter ever written than Romans 12. Why should we spend our time struggling through a part of God's word that, in all honesty, is tough to understand? Well, if I may throw out a couple of suggestions. The first is because Paul in his letter to Timothy is gonna say all scripture is inspired and thus is profitable for correction, for rebuke. It's profitable so that the, the man of God can be thoroughly furnished. Every part of it is worthwhile, even if we struggle with it. But I would say there's even something more important because the question Paul is really asking in chapters nine to 11 is, I told you there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I told you that you will never be separated from the love of God. But if God's chosen people, Israel, can be thrown aside, don't flatter yourself. You deserve it too. If God can throw them aside, why won't he throw me aside? And his answer is in chapter 9, 10, and 11. Chapter 9, his answer is because God is sovereign and he can show mercy to who he wants. And he can harden who he wants. And then he flips a corner in chapter 10 and he looks at it the other side. But the reality is no one will ever stand before him and say, God, you hardened my heart. It isn't fair. He will say, no, you refused to believe. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But then he turns in chapter 11 In the chapter 11, he's going to ask, has God really rejected Israel? And in verse 1, he asks this question, did God reject Israel? And it depends on which translation you want to follow, but Paul is going to use the strongest negative possible in the Greek language. The NIV translates it by no means. The New Living says, absolutely not. The King James says, God forbid. Whatever you would like to translate it, the answer is pretty clear. God's not done with Israel. We divided the chapter this way last week that Israel's rejection is partial. And if you were here, we spent our time looking at those first 10 verses in which Paul's argument goes something like this. I'm a Jew, thus not all Jews have rejected Jesus. And then he brings up that wonderful story of Elijah and there are always a larger remnant of people than you think. He's then going to turn to this rejection as purposeful and passing. And then next week, we're going to spend our Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend in the great doxology, one of the most beautiful passages anywhere in Paul's writing in which he explodes in this uncontrollable fit of praise as he bows in the presence of a God who deserves our praise and adoration. But this morning, I really do want to look at those two middle, that Israel's rejection is purposeful, and it is temporary or passing. Let me just read, beginning in verse 11, down through verse 28, Paul writes these words, and again I ask, 
did they, speaking of Israel, stumble so as not to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. So that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles have come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins Paul begins with the same question, in essence, that he started the chapter with. He starts with a question, did God reject Israel? And he says, by no means. Now he casts it a little bit. He says, well, okay, have they stumbled as to never recover? I'm convinced one of the real struggles we have when we come to the Bible is that it was written to people who lived a long time ago, halfway around the world, facing much different issues than we do. We look at verse number 11 in light of the last 2,000 years of history when nobody would really argue whether or not Israel has stumbled. If I can take you back to the brief history timeline, Paul writes the book of Romans on his third missionary journey. The majority of the missionary journey is spent in the city of Ephesus. He's there between two and three years ministering in and around the city of Ephesus. He writes the letter of 1 Corinthians and then in about 56 AD, he goes up to the city of Philippi and while in the city of Philippi, he's going to write the second letter to the Corinthians. So overwhelmed by his need to visit them, he will then go down in about 57 AD and he's going to visit the city of Corinth. And it is in about 57 AD Paul writes Romans. Do you know what's true in 57 AD? Israel was a nation doing just fine. Thank you very much. In fact, Paul, when he finishes his third missionary journey, is going to make that trip all the way back to the city of Jerusalem. 
And it isn't until 66 AD that the Romans will see things they don't appreciate in Israel and they will send troops. Israel will rebel and it will be met with force and Titus, the the great Roman general, will bring all of the Roman army down upon them and for four years he will bring war to the area of Palestine and in 70 AD he will lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. And in the fall of 70 AD he will breach the walls into the temple He will burn the temple to the ground. He will massacre, by Josephus' count, 900,000 Jews. Take another 100,000 or so and sell them into slavery. And for all intents and purposes, Israel ceases as a nation for roughly 1,900 years. But that hasn't happened when Paul writes. In fact, it could easily have been argued What in the world are you talking about, Paul? You're the one who stumbled. Who is it that's constantly getting beaten up? Who is it that's in jail? Who is it that's facing death time after time? Who has all of the problems? Not us. The temple's still up. The sacrificial system is still going. Everything is going fantastically. You're the problem, Paul, not us. I I, I mentioned that for this reason. Maybe you never have this thought in your mind. But from time to time, I look around me and I ask the question, why do the people who cheat, steal, and lie seem to prosper? Why is it the ones that seem to get ahead in our society are are, are the ones that are oftentimes doing it through immoral means? Where's God? May I caution you never to put God on your timetable? Paul, with absolute certainty, could argue that Israel had stumbled and it was only a matter of time until that stumbling became obvious to everyone. Thirteen years after he wrote it, no one will question whether Israel had stumbled. I'm guessing you hadn't. But it would take 13 years before God's sovereignty is made obvious. May I caution you? God's in control. It may not always appear that way and it may not always go as you had hoped, but I promise you, a million years from now, nobody will question how God worked things out. But Paul says, have they really stumbled so as to fall beyond recovery? And his answer is no. And then he moves to these three explanations. How can I say it's purposeful? Well, he begins by saying, because of their transgression. Does that bother you? May I suggest it's another one of those theological twists that my little brain really struggles with? It doesn't say that God worked in spite of their transgression, but rather through their transgression. How can a righteous God use the sin of humanity to accomplish his will? I don't know. But I can show you that it happens. If you were here back in chapter 8, we went back for a few moments back to the story of Joseph. And it's this amazing story of how Joseph's brothers hate Joseph so badly that they truly want him dead. But instead they decide rather than killing him that they would sell him off into slavery. And the next 17 years are nothing but horror as Joseph eventually finds himself in prison. But he literally is taken from prison to the second most powerful place on the planet. And God works in amazing ways and it won't be long until all of 
of Joseph's brothers will be headed down to Egypt because of the great famine to find food. And it won't be long until they find themselves seated around a table with Joseph having their lives in his hands. Do you remember what Joseph said in chapter 45? He says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He ends chapter 50, the book ends this way. Jacob has died, now they're convinced that Joseph is about to take his vengeance out on them and he says, you meant it for evil. You did a wicked, terrible thing. But as you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God orchestrated the evil that the brothers would commit and please don't in any way soften the guilt that they possessed. But God used even evil to work out his will. And now Paul says that it is because of the transgression of the Gentiles or the Jews that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. Because they disobeyed, you and I have the incredible privilege of being here this morning. I, I know this is gonna seem a little silly, but just humor me for a second. Imagine yourself being born in Iowa 2,500 years ago. Yes, there were people living in Iowa 2,500 years ago. You still had creation, and I am convinced had you responded to the revelation God had given you, you would have responded to more, but let's be honest. You would have been doomed. There would have been almost no hope. Because in the Old Testament, God was working through his nation, Israel, and in order to be what God required, it meant you had to go through Israel. And then because Israel sinned, God sets Israel aside and he says, now it's time for the world. We're here this morning because Israel sinned. Because of what they chose, you and I, have the privilege of responding in faith to Christ. That's right. You see that as you go through the book of Acts on four separate occasions, Paul, who is the apostle of the Gentiles, carries the gospel into the synagogue and, and is there for a while and finally he gets tired and he walks away and he goes to the Gentiles. The classic is in chapter 18. Paul has arrived in the city of Corinth and as he's ministering the day, building tents on Saturday, on the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue. But in verse five it says, when Silas and Timothy finally arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he goes back to the Gospels. You remember when Jesus sends out the 72 witnesses, he says, go into a village and if they don't receive you, shake the dust off your sandals. Well, he says, I shook out my garment and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. And it just so happened, his house was right next door to the synagogue. Paul turns from his hope, his desire to reach Jews, and he turned to Gentiles. You and I enjoy the incredible blessing that because Israel rejected Jesus, 
we have the privilege of believing. And the gospel spans the earth so that there will be people from every nation, every tribe, every language, every people group will one day stand in the presence of God for eternity in large part because the Jews said no. But that's not the only reason God turned to the Gentiles. Paul says he also turned to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Now, Maybe I'm the only one who struggles with this, but come on. Envy, isn't that a bad thing? Aren't I supposed to not be jealous of the things you do when I see your car, your home, your whatever? It's wrong to be jealous. Jealousy is one of those things that is difficult to get our hands around because there are times that we are to be jealous when it is something that God desires for us to have. And Paul says that God sent the gospel to the Gentiles to make the Jews envious or jealous. I, I came across an illustration. I, I don't know if it helps you. It helped me, so let me, let me try it. Imagine that you are the only son of an extremely wealthy father. He owns and runs a multi-billion dollar corporation and, and you work for him and, and he sees the many hours that you put in, the tremendous pressure that you're under. He sees all of the things you're trying to do with your kids and you're just wiped out constantly and finally he comes into your office one afternoon and he says, I, I see you're really stressed. In fact, you're so stressed, I wanna do something for you. I purchased a piece of property on the lake I had my workers construct a beautiful house, built a dock, put a speedboat, jet skis in it, built a garage, put some four-wheelers, a convertible or two, maybe a motorcycle, and you and your kids can go and just enjoy the weekend at the lake. And you say, what? I don't have time to go play. Do you know how many things I have to get done? And all you can hear is what a burden it's going to be to have to fill up the jet skis and and clean another bathroom. I, I don't want that. No, Dad, I've got more than I can handle now. No. Your dad, discouraged, sits in his office, and as he's sitting in his office, the janitor comes in. Janitor is an immigrant, doesn't speak great English. The father picks up a conversation with him and he begins to talk to him and, and asks him how things are going and he gives the, oh, good, and as the father explores, finds out that they are, are living with relatives because they don't have their own place to live. They're barely able to make ends meet and he, he's having a hard time keeping his kids clothed and, and fed and he has an idea. He says, how would you like to go to the lake? And the janitor said, oh, I would love to go to the lake, but we can't afford that. There's no way we could afford that. And the father says, well, I'd like you to go to my house. You mean you'd let me go for the weekend? And your dad says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I want to give you the house. The janitor almost falls down. He can't imagine anybody being so generous. And he takes the keys and they move into this house and they have the greatest weekend they've ever had in the history of their lives. And he comes in to work on Monday and he's cleaning out your trash can, and you've never seen anyone so happy. And finally, you just break down. I gotta say, hey, dude, what's going on? He says, you'll never believe what happened to me. The owner of the company gave me a house. And as he begins to recount the joy on the jet ski and the convertible and the four-wheelers, you begin to realize what an idiot you were. And finally, you recognize how foolish you were And you wander up to your dad's office and you say, Dad, I was really stupid. I I don't know what I was thinking. I should have accepted your offer. 
And your dad says, I know. I thought you might have that answer. I had him build two houses. Here's your key. Jealousy that moved the nation to want Jesus. In fact, Paul says that the whole purpose for you receiving the gospel is not for you alone, but for others to see you and want what you have. Peter's gonna make the point in 1 Peter chapter three, he's gonna say, instead you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if, or if I may translate it, when someone asks you your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. When was the last time somebody came up to you and said, hey dude, what's going on? Why are you always so hopeful? Why are you so joyful? I I know that your life isn't perfect. Where do you find this joy? Are we truly different? Or are we just like everybody else? And nobody sees the hope that is within us. See, it was Paul's desire that there would be this jealousy that they would so long to want what the Gentiles have that they would eventually come back. And then Paul in verse C, he says that the fullness of Israel will bring much greater joy. In verse number 12, he says, if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, he wants to draw a lesser to the greater kind of argument. As amazing as it is when you find Christ, that's amazing. But there's something even more amazing. He says, as they see you, the riches you receive, how much greater riches will there be with their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles, in so much as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, if their rejection brings salvation to the world, what will their acceptance be? But life from death. Now, there are a few phrases in Romans chapter 11 that theologians have argued for and over for centuries. And please don't hear me to say that I have the final word on it, because I don't. I spent a lot of time trying to struggle through it. And maybe this is because of my eschatological thinking slipping into my hermeneutics. If that's true, I apologize. But what's greater than reconciliation. Many would come to this and say, oh, he's just talking about salvation. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we have moved from death unto life. This is a unique phrase. And it seems to me as Paul is talking about something grander than just reconciliation. I wonder if he isn't going back to Ezekiel 37 when the prophet Ezekiel is in a valley with dry bones where nothing but death is around him and God commands Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones and a wind comes in and suddenly these bones are reassembled and as they are reassembled, they receive muscles and skin and bodies and soon these bones are reconstituted as bodies and then the breath continues and there's life from death. Ezekiel's point 
is that moment in which more than just reconciliation, but the entire world is brought from death to life. I have to wonder if he isn't talking about that moment when Christ returns and returns the world back to how God had intended it, the lion laying down with the lamb, the child playing with the the predators with no fear, a person who's 100 years old and dies will be considered young, A, a time in which God renews the entire planet. When the Jews become jealous and find reconciliation. But there's a warning. I I was tempted to spend a few more weeks on Romans 11 because there's a lot of questions I have and I came to the conclusion all I was going to do is confuse me and thus probably you. I don't understand the illustration. I'm not a horticulturalist. If you remember back when we were in Romans chapter eight or chapter six, we talked about the grafting, and and I'm much better at eating plants than growing plants. If I I was really tempted to try this, I would love to graft a a peach branch into an apple tree and see what happens. But I'm pretty sure I'd kill both of them, and so I'm not going to try that. But I, I I somewhat understand grafting. Paul's turned specifically to olive trees, and I'm told that olive trees last for a long time. In fact, I found this video. You can go watch it if you want. It's the story of a gentleman who actually lives in Spain, not in Palestine, but his entire mission in life is to bring life to olive trees that are a minimum of 1,000 years old. And they do it a number of different ways. They get rid of the weeds, they get rid of the dead growth, and they sometimes, yes, even graft in new branches. And Paul is going to turn to this illustration in which there's some removed and some added, and and the wild branch goes into the cultivated root, which is not the way it normally works because then you just get more wild, wild olives. Normally it works the other way around. And, and I read a number of people who criticize Paul as to not knowing what he's talking about. I, I, I hope I never get to the place where I'm confident Paul didn't know what he was talking about and I the one with the answer. I'm pretty sure it's the other way around and someday you can ask him. I, I, I don't know what all of the illustration is for, but the point's not hard to get. The point is this. Granted, you were grafted in, but they were broken off because of their unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant. One of the great human qualities is we like to look down on other people and build ourselves up. And Paul's argument in Romans 11 is you must be very careful not to do that particularly to God's people, the Jews. You say, I would never do that. I could spend the rest of the afternoon going through stories of some of the greatest men in the history of the church who did exactly that. I could take you to one of Martin Luther's final books is a book entitled Jews and Their Lies in which he advocated Jewish synagogues should be burned and rabbis should be kept silence at the penalty of death if they speak. It was a book that Adolf Hitler would use to justify his Holocaust. Martin Luther did some amazing things, greater things than I'm sure I will ever do. And yet it is abundant to me, obvious to me, that it's easy to fall into this, we're better than they are. See, I believed. Listen to yourself sometime. What exactly did you do? You received a gift that was given to you? 
And that's going to make you want to brag? Really? But then Paul says, don't you think that if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either? Now, I I don't know for sure what Paul is arguing for. Some would suggest he's saying that you and I can lose our salvation. I I would go back to Romans 8, and I don't think there's any passage in all of Scripture that argues for eternal security better than Romans 8. I would suggest that Romans 11 is primarily a corporate passage. He's not talking about individuals, Jews. He's talking about the nation. I think he's talking about churches. And just as I could take you all afternoon through theologians who have become anti-Semitic, I could take you back to place after place where the gospel once ran rampant. Today you can't find it. I could take you back to Turkey, the birthplace of Christianity. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Most of the churches in which Paul would plant, the seven churches of the book of Revelation, are all in Turkey, Ephesus, Colossae, all of these great churches for the first two, three hundred years of the church exploded across Turkey. Today it's against the law to be a Christian in Turkey. By the government's count, 99.8% of people who live in Turkey are anti-Christian. We don't know for sure how many there are because nobody wants to admit it for fear of death. I could take you across Europe where there are these beautiful cathedrals that once spoke of of huge groups worshiping our Savior. Today they're museums. I could take you across our country. Take you to ministries that once were thriving and booming. I've closed the doors. I'm so thankful for what God is doing in Victor today. But don't ever think it will always be this way. It will always be this way if we remain in the grace of our Savior. But it is so easy for most of us to begin to think it's about us. And then we stand in real danger. In fact, Paul says, consider. The word consider is used a thousand times. It's oftentimes translated with the word look. The King James liked to translate it behold. The idea is pay special attention here because I want you to contemplate two things, the kindness and the sternness of God. We're really good about talking about the kindness of God. Uh, On Thursday, I had a chance to go up to Steamboat Rock. Uh, Iowa pastors got together. As I drove past a farm, I saw this incredibly beautiful Thanksgiving display with rocks and pumpkins and, and everything you would want for a display. And in great big letters, it said, God is love. Please don't misunderstand me. God is love. But there's a danger in focusing only on his love. In fact, many of the evangelical leaders in our world want to make the argument that in the end, love wins and God would never judge anybody. Paul says all you have to do is look at Israel, his chosen children set aside for unbelief. God is a loving God. He is an incredibly kind God. Beyond my ability to describe, he sent his son to take upon himself the punishment that you deserve, that I deserved. But if I don't receive the gift, I will be punished. You will be punished. Because he is a kind 
and stern God. Paul says that the rejection of Israel was purposeful, but I'm convinced he ends the chapter by saying it is also passing. In verse number 25, he says, I I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery. In in 21st century understanding, the word mystery speaks of a genre of shows, books, movies, in which the, the, the clues are slowly leaked out, and if you're really good, you can put it together and figure out who did it. Biblically, a mystery is the only way you can understand it is if you receive new revelation. What Paul is saying is this is something I got directly from God. This isn't my hope. This isn't what I would like to have happen. This isn't what I truly desire to see what happen. This is what God told me. He says there's a threefold step. The, the first step is that Israel has been hardened. And we don't have time to go back to chapter nine because I know the idea that God hardens people's hearts is something that is uncomfortable to talk about. And yet I am convinced that God does it. Now, no one will stand before him and say, God, it's your fault. I didn't believe. We went back to the story of Pharaoh, and it is clear that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but don't see Pharaoh as this innocent guy who never did anything wrong. That isn't even close to the picture. He chose to say no to God, and God said, okay. At some point, Israel said no to God. I I don't know for sure when that is. It could have been at the crucifixion. I I tend to think it was actually in Acts chapter 7. If you go back to Acts chapter 7, there's the story of Stephen telling the sermon, and basically his sermon goes this way. Go back and look through the history of Israel. Israel always got it wrong the first time. Abraham leaves Ur, parks in Haran until his dad dies, then he gets it right. Uh, Moses came to the edge of the promised land and doesn't go in. It isn't until Joshua. Israel always got it wrong the first time, but they did get it right the second time. You crucified Jesus. Now it's time to believe. And they stone him. And then for the next 2,000 years, God has hardened the corporate hearts of the nation. And they cannot. And they will not believe. I was sharing with Paul this week, I listened to one story which just kind of boggled my mind. It was of a a messianic Jew, somebody who came to faith in Christ. And he was talking to his very devout grandmother and he was explaining, I don't get it, dad is an atheist. Dad never goes to the synagogue. Dad has no interest to observe any of the Torah. He doesn't even believe in any of the prophets. I study the prophets, I love the prophets. And her response was, yeah, but you love Jesus. So your dad's a better Jew than you are. The hearts of Israel are hardened. The Gentiles, the Gentiles come in. And Paul says, when the full number of the Gentiles have come in, how many is that? I don't think Paul knew. I know that I don't know. But at some moment, The fullness of Gentiles will come in. And then Paul says, all Israel. What does he mean by all Israel? If life unto death would take us all afternoon, this might take us the rest of the week. I don't know all of the details, but I do not believe you can come to Romans chapter 11 and not conclude that Paul understood Israel has a future. 
And that as a national entity, because that's pretty clear, he's contrasting the nation of Israel from Gentiles, that there is a future. We can argue, we can debate, we can talk about all of the different details of exactly what that looks like. But I believe strongly Israel has a future. And I came across, I don't know that this is the way it's going to happen, but I so fell in love with the idea. I'm going to share it. One of the individuals was sharing that he wonders if this, all Israel will be saved, is a Pauline salvation. What do I mean? Go back to Acts chapter 9. You remember Paul's walking on the road to, to Damascus. He's going to arrest, to harass, to persecute, and yes, if need be, kill some Christians. And as he's walking, he sees this bright light in the sky, and he says, who are you, Lord? And the light says, I am Jesus. I have to wonder if there's coming a day in which the forces of the evil one will surround Israel and all hope for the nation is lost and that moment of mass extermination sits at the door and it looks as if there's no hope for Israel when suddenly a bright light from the sky will appear and the nation will say, who are you, Lord? And he will say, I am Jesus and they will fall on their faces and God will destroy the evil one and all Israel will be saved. Romans 11 is a tough passage. What can I take, what can you take from it? May I just suggest one thought? I don't know all of the details, but I have absolute confidence God is in control. And in the end, God wins. The question is whose side will you be on in the end? Will you reject the offer of grace or through simple childlike faith receive the gift and one day watch as all Israel is saved and we enter eternity in the presence of our Savior. Father, I I do thank you that even though there are many things that confuse me that I struggle to fully understand, I know you are in charge. God, it is my prayer that each of us in this room this morning would place our faith in the finished work of Jesus because your mercy truly is more than our sins. Thank you. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.